Hi, this is Samantha Tan, driver of the number 38 BMW M4 GT4 for ST Racing in the Pirelli World Challenge, and you're listening to Speedway Sounds on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed on Speedway Sounds are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, UC Irvine, or the University of California Board of Regents. Hello car fanatics in Irvine, Orange County, California, the United States, and around the world. It's time for the most famous words in motorsport. Drivers, start your engines. This week on Speedway Sounds, today is a special one-hour edition, airing from 4 p.m. to 5. This past Sunday in nearby Orange, California, UC Irvine student and Pirelli World Challenge driver Samantha Tan entered the number 38 ST Racing BMW M4 GT4 that you just heard at the beginning, were the special guests at the BMW Car Club of America event at the Fumzan Auto Repair Shop. I spoke with her at the event about bringing her race car to BMW fans in Southern California, her season so far, and her reaction to the news that the Pirelli World Challenge put the GTS Sprint X car class into the East and West series, called GT4 Americas. After that, I spoke with Kenneth Sutton, the owner of Fumzain Automotive, about his shop and the BMW Car Club of America. After that, I'll pre I will premiere my full interview, including additional conversation after we were live on air with 17-time Indianapolis 500 driver Dick Simon. The interview originally aired last month, but there is bonus content this time. All that and more this week on Speedway Sounds. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Series 7, Episode 4 of Speedway Sounds on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today is Tuesday, July 24th. I'm your host, Noah Stein, and thanks for tuning in. I'll start today's show with the Fumzane Fest. This past Sunday, Samantha Tan brought her race car to Orange, California to display it at the Fumzane Automotive Repair Shop on Catella Avenue between the 55 and 57 freeways. The number 38 BMW M4 GT4 was parked front and center in front of the shop, and by the time I arrived at 11 a.m. one hour into the event, the front, side, and back lots were completely packed with BMWs. More BMW owners were on the way, filling up the street parking, which actually forced me to park at the Farmer Boys down the street. After a short walk, I arrived at a crowd of several dozens lined up for the barbecue lunch that Fumzane was providing. A DJ was spinning tunes with pop and R&B hits from over the years to set a festive mood for the day. There were BMWs of many eras, shapes, and sizes. Several cars had track day-ready setups, and pretty much all were sparkling, freshly washed to show off. Samantha was with her race car most of the time, opening the 38's hood and doors, allowing folks to climb in and take a peek at the controls, and answering any questions from the interested crowd, and as well as posting for photographs. Inside the shop, she signed posters, and one of those is now up on the KUCI wall here in the studio. 
She also drove her 1M, her daily driver, out to the event and gave tours of it as well. She was kind enough to take some time to talk with me, and I'll play that audio now. Just in case you're wondering, I had to reconstruct some of the audio because of a microphone glitch that affected some of my questions. But they are the exact same wording. Here's my interview with Samantha Tan. Hello, everyone. I'm here on Catella Avenue in Orange, California. It's about half past noon here on Sunday, July 22nd. I'm here at the Fumzane Auto Repair Shop for the BMW Car Club of America event and car show here at the repair shop. I'm also with special guest Samantha Tan, UC Irvine economics student and Pirelli World Challenge race car driver. Hi, Samantha. How's it going today? Good. How are you? Doing awesome. Thanks. So what's it like being down here in Southern California, coming to a car show in near, right next to UCI as well? Well, I'm right in my element. I love seeing all these enthusiasts coming out, bringing out their BMWs. It's great seeing such a great variety. Yeah, it's excellent. It's excellent. Right behind us here, you actually brought your race car, the BMW M4 GT4. Talk about it and how cool it is to bring it down here. So this is a BMW M4 GT4 from ST Racing. Uh, we're currently using it in the GTSX class in Pirelli World Challenge. Uh, right now we've got about 420 horsepower. And um, yeah, it's like your regular M4 except everything's stripped out, you know. No traction control, no stability management. It's just a, it's a lot of fun. That's excellent. That's excellent. You've been having a fun time here showing it around, have, firing up the engine as well. Talk about like the event here. BMW Car Club of America put it on. They invited you to come down here. Talk about your relationship with them. Well, that's great. Um, it's the BMW Car Club of America. Uh, we've got a lot of members. You know, we've got really good uh, member benefits, and they put on a lot of great events, just like this one. You get to see a lot of really old classic BMWs all the way up to the newer gen. You know, we've got a lot of built cars, and it's amazing. That's excellent. Yeah, and you're coming off. You're coming down here off of your recent trip to Portland International Raceway, the Pirelli World Challenge Round Seven and Eight there of the 2018 season. It was a bit of a rough stretch for you. Had some contact with the car. Nick Whitmer got hit by another BMW driver. It's been a bit of a rough time for the team. Yeah, it, it was kind of a rough weekend for us, you know. But we did put our heart out there. Heart out there. Um, we gave it our best effort, and you know, even though we didn't have the greatest luck, I know that we're gonna do the same in Utah. You know, give it our best shot and just do, it, do the best we can. <laughs> mm -hmm. And speaking of your next race in Utah, it's rounds nine and ten, the season finale. It's been—it's a track you've been to before, but now you've got the new car again, BMW M4, in the GTS class. What's how are you going to take the experience from your previous races at Utah? You know, like we've gone through the whole season. I've gotten comfortable with this car. Utah has been a great place for me. It's where I got my Hard Charger award back in 2015 from starting 12th position, making my way up to the fourth position. So you know, it brings back a lot of great memories, and I'm hoping to bring back the same kind of feeling as last time. Indeed. You also brought your BMW M1, your daily driver. Oh, it's the 1M. You're. <laughs> It's okay. Um, yep, yeah, it's right over there. Um, love that car still. It's my daily driver. Got, I just put a new like rear diffuser on it and a new custom or a custom exhaust. So. Excellent. You've been driving that car since day one, pretty much, right? Yep. Yeah, it was a car I learned manual in. You know, when I was uh, 13 years old, I believe. <laughs> a bit intimidating of a car to start driving manual in, but uh, hey, fell in love with it. It's been my car since. That's excellent. There's one more bit of news that came out of the Portland weekend. It's that the Pirelli World Challenge is going to split up the series next year, the GTS Sprint X class, into East and West. 
Any thoughts about what series you might want to do next year with the team? Yeah, um, honestly, I think that the tracks I like most happen to be on the East Coast, even though that's going to be a bit of a struggle for me as a full-time student. Um, I definitely love all the East Coast tracks, such as, you know, VIR, Mid-Ohio. I think they're counting Coda as an East uh, Coast track, so I feel like I'm going to be competing in that series. Interesting. Thanks very much for the news. And, Samantha, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Speedway Sounds today. No problem. Thank you for having me. All right. You can catch her at the Utah Motorsports Park next month. World-challenge.com is where the race will be streamed live. Thanks again, Samantha. Thank you. All right. That was my interview with Samantha Tan from Sunday at the Fumzane Auto Event in Orange. Thanks again for, thanks very much for bearing with me through some of those audio glitches. Very unfortunate. I think it was a loose connection between the microphone and a wire that connected to my recorder. And as such, that happens. Hopefully you were still able to understand everything in the interview. You may have noticed also that I committed the cardinal beamer sin of calling Samantha's car an M1 and not a 1M. I actually did a little research on this. The BMW M1, like I called it originally, was a sports car produced by BMW from 1978 to 1981. Enthusiasts will certainly know what I'm talking about, but uh, in the late 1970s, Italian manufacturer Lamborghini entered into an agreement with BMW to build a production racing car in sufficient quantity for homologation, but conflicts arose that prompted BMW to produce the car themselves. A little bit of history behind that. The result, the M1, was sold to the public from 1978 to 1981. Fun fact, it was the first mid-engine BMW to be mass-produced. So that's completely different from the 1M, which is a rear-drive car. And back to the event now. Definitely an interesting preference on which regional series she'd rather compete in. The current tra Eastern tracks, as she mentioned, Coda, also Virginia International Raceway and Lime Rock Park, are ones she's had a lot of time in both this year and in previous years in the touring car category. I'm personally anticipating that based on the current tracks that have consistently been on the calendar, that the Pirelli World Challenge will look at adding her home track, Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, Road America, or Watkins Glen to the Eastern region calendar, in addition to the three I had mentioned. The Western calendar might include WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Sega, in addition to Portland and Utah. Racer.com wrote in an article on the changes that the Thermal Club racetrack just southeast of, of Palm Springs, California, could also be a standalone race for the new GT4 America's West Championship. Back to the event, I spoke with Kenneth Sutton, the owner of Fumse Automotive, about his shop and hosting the event with the BMW Car Club of America, just as the event was wrapping up in the afternoon. All right, the event's almost coming to a close here, but we're at the Fumzane Auto Shop in Orange, California. Standing right next to me is Kenneth Sutton, the owner of Fumzane Auto. Welcome to Speedway Sounds. Thank you for having us. So, tell me about the auto shop a little bit, a little bit about its history. How long have you been owning it? Uh, the shop will be open for two years in August, this August. Oh, so relatively new. Yes, yes, very new. Um, before that, I was at Sterling BMW in Newport Beach. I was there for uh, 13 years. Incredible, yeah. yeah. Brand new. Yeah. So, talk about having the BMW Car Club of America out here today with the event with Samantha Tan as well as your guest. Yeah, uh, she, you know, she was uh, gracious enough to let us display her car and her come out and sign some posters and talk to other club members. And uh, Kyle Van Hoften, uh coordinated everything with the with the club and you know got all that stuff rolling for us 
It was excellent. So you had a lot of good stuff out here. You had a barbecue here earlier today. At least 50 to 60 BMWs came out here to support the, <laughs> to least. be part of the car show. Yeah, at least. Uh, I don't know what the ratio of members to non-members was, but there was a good turnout regardless. Mm -hmm. So talk about uh, BMW Car Club of America membership. Uh, the membership is great, actually. Um, they have a lot of benefits, like from uh, lease incentives, and it's and it's pretty cheap for like the one-year membership. And then, if you decide to do a, a lease with BMW, I think it's like anywhere from two fifty to fifteen hundred dollars off a lease. So that pays for your membership right there in the savings. Indeed. How often are you doing events like this out here? Um, this this event in particular is the first one I've held with uh, Car Club of America, but uh, this is my third event that I've had here. Excellent. Thanks so much for telling us a little bit about the shop here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Kenneth Sutton, owner of Fumzane Auto in Orange, California. Thanks again. All right. That was, again, my interview with Kenneth Sutton of Fumzane Automotive. It was a really awesome and enjoyable day out of the Fumzane shop on Sunday. And thanks to Samantha and Kenneth for taking the time to be interviewed there. It was a really awesome event. It was actually one of the first car show-related events I've been to this year. I've, I've been focusing on racing and also, you know, my studies here at UC Irvine. And so to, to actually be able to take a break and, and go out to one of these events and uh, see a, you know, see a race car driver that I've interviewed several times on this show, Samantha Tan, and also for the very first time, her race car, the BMW M4 GT4. It's one heck of a race car, and it's amazing to see just what the changes are, what the difference is between the production BMW M4 and then the race car version, as she was saying, she, you know, the, the car stripped out. It was produced by the factory, by the BMW factory themselves. This car, the M4 GT4, if you didn't know, is raced all around the world in GT4 categories, not just in the Pirelli World Challenge. There's also a GT4 European Championship. And the GT4 category is rapidly growing throughout the world, along with a little bit higher class GT3. BMW also races in GT3, and of course, they race in the GT Le Mans category with a different model. And yeah, BMW, very active in international motorsport. So on to the next segment for today's show. Again, a special one hour long episode. So I thought I'd go back to about a month ago uh, my, on my uh, June 5th show back in the spring quarter. And I had interviewed on that day absolutely a legend of motorsport, Dick Simon. He is a 17-time Indianapolis 500 driver from 1970 to 1988. And he was gracious enough to take some time to come in live to the studio in, here in Irvine, California, and talk about all his lengthy, decades-long racing career and all the experience and all the memories he has. Uh, unfortunately, what happened at, on that particular day is that there's a very bad traffic situation uh, heading here from his home, his current home in Dana Point. And so he was actually late to the show, and we only got to start at around 4.15 when the show started at 4. And so what I decided to do is we had 15 minutes on air until 4.30, and then afterwards I decided to go into one of our recording studios here at, at KUCI and record some more questions. So for the very first time, I am premiering this, both the first part that did air live and the second part with additional questions and great stories with Dick Simon. I hope you enjoy. This will be approximately a 32-minute interview. It's a great one. Stay tuned. My guest today has worn many hats and helmets in his long life around the racetrack. While he is most well known for his 17 starts in the Indianapolis 500 from 1970 to 1988, 
owning a race team in the Kart IndyCar World Series, and working with IndyCar drivers Ari Leyendijk, Lynn St. James, and Alicia Salazar, his career in motorsport spans far beyond these statistics. He'll talk about his racing career and his decision to put on the racing helmet one final time for the Sports Car Vintage Racing Association Invitational at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on June 16th at the young age of 84 years old. Welcome Dick Simon to Speedway Sounds. Well, thank you, Noah. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you know, I had a terrible time getting here to your show. The traffic on the 405 was stopped almost half the way here. It took me an hour where normally it's 15 minutes from Dana Point to here. Oh man, that's that's just un that's really unfortunate. Uh, and not only that, UCI is a bit of a complicated campus to get around. Is so that added to our delay? Well, you know, I'll be 85 in September, and uh, you just gave me a good test walking up here. Oh, that's great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start with a very big question in this interview is, and since it's a great privilege to be able to ask this of someone who has done so much in motorsport, what does racing mean to you? Well, racing to me has been the, uh, the most wonderful thing in the world, you know, because you're walking on thin ice when you're really competitive. So it's like I can explain it to your listeners in this fashion. If you're out there on a dry pavement going around a corner at 75 to 85 and you come along where there's some trees overhanging and the road is wet and all of a sudden the car starts to move front and rear. That's when your heart comes right up in your throat and you hope you don't panic and create a situation. And that's what it's like driving a car uh, at its speed that we drive those cars. You know, you're doing 200 plus going into turn one, 230 actually. And in this vintage car, it's a 64 Corvette that I'll be driving. Um, we get down to the end of the straightaway going into turn one on the Formula One course at 185. So even though it's a vintage car, it's still pretty fast. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. So I want to go back to the very beginning of your career in motorsport. Incredibly, though, racing wasn't your first pastime. Your first pastimes were skiing and parachute jumping, I read. How did you end up at a racetrack or in a race car at first? Well, basically, I went through college on a skiing scholarship, and the one part that I loved the most was the ski jumping because you could just fly through the air. And one time out of my kitchen window, I saw the Golden Knights doing a demonstration parachute jump at the Sandy Airport in Utah. I immediately went out and got in a car and drove up there and talked to a gentleman by the name of Steve Biljanic, who had been in the 81st Airborne, and uh, told him I would like to do that. By the end of that afternoon, I had made three jumps, and I just fell in love with it and went on to make uh, over 1,600 jumps in my career of parachuting and won the Utah National Parachuting Championships uh, as a team event. Uh, there was four of us, and as all of that notoriety caused us to... Uh, uh, have an invitation to the Salt Lake City Fairgrounds where they held Super Modifieds. And every Saturday night, they would uh, uh, entertain a crowd of about 6,000 people. Back then, I was uh, in the insurance business. I was president of a couple of insurance companies. And I saw all those 6,000 people and thought, my gosh, I've got a captured audience. i got to join this type of situation. And that night, he put together four cars for us to run a 10-lap race because of the show we put on parachuting and landing in front of the crowd they loved it and the promoter got ca caught up in it uh, Farrell Papworth was his name and he got all caught up in it and said if if I do get four car owners to put together 
a little 10 lap race would you guys drive it for the audience and he said that over the loudspeaker and so the audience oh, wow, said really? yeah yeah and so you know the hype was gone and we got into the cars and i crashed mine <laughs> the last lap trying to get around the guy in front of me and i felt so bad about it i went down into the pits afterwards and i said i want to repair your car he says don't worry about it i'm getting a divorce on monday he said <laughs> no the way. judge is going to determine what i have to pay the wife so i said well what would you have sold the car for he says 2500 to 3000 and i said i'll give you 2500 and he says sold <laughs> oh, no. oh, i incredible. took it home repaired it and got started racing ah that's incredible that's incredible uh, racing hard for the win in your very first race yeah yeah so you started out like a lot of young drivers today, racing whenever you could locally before getting your chance to race across the country. What were those first professional races like for you? Well, actually, <clears throat> after winning 20 out of 21 super modified races the following year, I went out and bought a Grant King chassis that was uh, made out of Portland, Oregon. And Art Pollard, Jim Malloy, Billy Foster, and a few others had that same car. And we were competing against each other. And uh, I broke my back in parachuting in three places. Mm -hmm. They went on to Indy. Three years later, I wanted to go to Indy. And they said, Dick, you've got to have some high-speed open-wheel experience. So I borrowed a guy's Corvette and drove in the regional and national race in Las Vegas. I won both. And so then they said, well, maybe you could go ahead and advance to the open wheel. So I then bought a Lola T42, I believe it was, from Carl Haas. And um, I managed to win the Colorado uh, Divide race and uh, finished uh, in the top five, all five races. And so then they said, you can come to Indy and take a test, but you're going to have to run a race first. So I ran Riverside and uh, Sonoma and then went to Indy in a car that I had paid $12,500 for from Rolla Volstead that had never made a race. And I was very proud because it was a five-year-old car. I made the race and finished uh, 13th with a blown turbocharger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, before we continue on that story, there's a lot I want to ask you about those first years. You alluded to this already. Your career, only a few years old at that point, almost came to a tragic again when you parachuted your parachute jumped in dangerous conditions in 1966. How did you, you mentioned your injuries. How did you recover from that, both physically and mentally, to get back in a race car? Well, that, getting back in a race car was just automatic. I mean, you know, I, uh, I even drove with my broken back a couple of races. I took the cast off, uh, took the little saw up both sides and so that I could drive, and then put the cast back on. Um, you, you know, it's like... The the doctor that uh, took care of me said, I love taking care of you farmers and, and competitors in sports. And I said, why is that? Because he says, you do whatever it takes to get it done. And so for me, no. I, uh, if you look at... Uh, uh, Dick Simon Riverside right now, you will see me flipping at 190 miles an hour end over end at the Riverside track. That next weekend, I was running in the top three at Michigan the very oh, next wow. weekend. So, you know, I remember 
during that accident, I saw a lady fall, and I was flipping 12 times, and the safety crew said, how in the world did you see that? Well, it slows way down. I had time to hold the steering wheel really good and so that I didn't get whiplashed and all of that, but I also saw the lady fall, and I asked I saw a lady fall in the running away from the fence and they said well she's in the infield hospital you'll see her she broke her wrist I had no injuries not one. Oh dang wow so you definitely recovered from it and definitely yeah, you went on you you say you had multiple tu- uh, multiple touches with death that's something I can't imagine today's drivers doing it's, it was such a different era back then and, and me being only 20 years old it's hard to understand just like the the passion and the resilience. It's it's re- great to hear that kind of that kind of story, for sure. You know, life is a lot different than it is today for a twenty year old. Back when I was uh, fourteen, I was driving trucks at a shipyard in in Seattle, Washington. By the time I was nineteen, married and had a child, so I went off to college on a skiing scholarship, or I probably would never have made it because I was supporting my mother and my brother. Uh, and sister uh, my father had left so you know back then a 20 year old was old (laughs) wow yeah that's amazing that's amazing so you got the opportunity to qualify for the greatest spectacle in racing in 1970 do you remember the moment you officially qualified for your first indy 500 that was a very special moment because i was told by everybody dick you're wasting your time you're wasting your money um you might as well just take that piece of junk that you bought and uh, turn it into a show car or something and try to get some money out of it. And so even Clarence Cagle, when I drove into the Speedway with a little red, uh, uh, well, I guess it was a station wagon, and behind it was the trailer with my used car that had come all the way across country, was filthy, and Clarence Cagle, in charge of the Speedway, said, Oh, boy, not another one of you dreamers. Well, that dream came true. I qualified 10th, I believe it was, or 13th, whatever, uh, and finished 10th or 13th. I I might get them backwards, but there was a 10th and a 13th there, and I wasn't supposed to even make the race. So that was a special, special thing. Indeed. I I looked through a little bit, a few of the records. You were part of the field of 33, just like today, 33 cars. But different than this year, this year, two cars failed to qualify, two drivers failed to qualify for the race. Back in your year, 28 drivers failed to qualify, including the legendary Bruce McLaren. That's incredible that you out-qualified him and were able to make your way into the race. And by the record, you finished 14th in that first Indy 500, which is, which is an outstanding finish. Well, 13th sounds better to me. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But I might say, you know, a lot of it, uh, the ability to get that car in the race was because I grew up taking care of my own, uh, anything I had. And I had at 14, I had a car. So basically I had to take care of it. So I, I had a little bit of an idea of what it took to make a car go fast. And so as an example, I went on to engineer cars, and later on, just while I was engineering our cars, we put Raul Boisel driving for us on the front row at Indy in 1995, I believe it was, or 93, um, and in between two Penske cars with a sponsorship of $20 million apiece, we had $3 million. and then Lynn St. James on the outside of the second row, uh, ahead of three world champions with a million eight budget. Yeah, incredible. I hear a bit of a, speed, uh, a speedway sound in the background. I, I, your phone might be going off. 
I think that's my phone. Indeed. No problem at all. No problem at all. That was the best ringtone I've heard in quite some time. (laughs) It's a Formula One car, and it's about 12,000 RPM. For sure, for sure. So uh, continuing on with the questions I had, amazingly, your best two finishes in the 500 came in your last two starts in 1987 and 1988, sixth and ninth respectively in Lola Cosworth's. What made those two years' finishes stand out from the rest? Was it your driving, your car, your, or your team, or, or what was it? Well, I would say it was the first two years that I had good equipment. Before that, I was always driving leftover engines, trying to save budget, uh, driving a used cars, three, four, and five years old. Uh, in 87, it was my really first time to have a really sharp, a new car and a, a good strong engine out of Cosworth. With that combination, I should have won the race. Mario and I were a lap ahead of the field at one point. I ran out of fuel and lost some laps, made up the laps, and still finished sixth. Mario blew up and finished ninth, but that was his or my race. So I always look at it as though the good Lord gave me the opportunity to win that year. We blew it as a crew and ran me out of fuel. I'm as guilty mm-hmm. as them. And uh, I'll always remember I had my opportunity. Man, the Indy 500, even back then, was breaking hearts and with, with fuel mileage finishes. It seems to happen every other year nowadays that fuel mileage decides that, even this year. So uh, what else? What else? When did you decide to stop driving Indy cars and step back to being a team owner? To drive the vintage cars, actually came as a suggestion by Lynn St. James. Lynn St. James was driving in the uh, vintage cars for a long time after she retired from Indy, and she said to me, Dick, you should come and join this. They're going to have the first Formula One track race on vintage cars. We had 700 cars there. So to me, uh, when the promoter, Tony Pirelli, put together a package where he brought 33 of the ex-Indy drivers like Al Unser, uh, Mario, uh, myself, and Ari Leyendijk, and a, a bunch of retired drivers. He brought them back, put us all up in suites, and then did a 45-minute race, 20 minutes where the owner of the car would drive, five-minute fuel and change driver break and then 20 minutes with the indie drivers putting on a show the ex-indie drivers putting on a show for the fans um it was so exciting but i made a big mistake i actually got in that car Mm -hmm. without uh uh, earplugs because in the indie cars the engines are behind you and in the vintage car the exhaust is right by the door so i blew out most of my hearing but i'm managing now with these earphones you've got on me to hear you pretty good <laughs> oh that's excellent that's excellent unfortunately we're, we i've only i seem like i've only gone through maybe even the just the first half of, of your amazing story dick simon and i want to quickly fit in one question because we're running out of time for the live showing here of speedway sounds what are you looking forward to most coming up next weekend in your final race at the brickyard of all places, coming back to where you've made your name. Well, the first race, uh, the car owner, Jim Heck, and myself finished third. Uh, And the next race, I had cataract surgery, so I drove it with one eye, and we finished 16th. And then we had a few little problems uh, uh, on my back. I had a back operation the next one. And now this one, I feel really fit. 
Although I'll be 85 in September, I don't feel it. So I'm looking forward to going after a win if we can. All right, welcome back to Speedway Sounds. I'm back with Indy 500 starter and team owner Dick Simon. Welcome back, Dick, to the show. Noah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much. I had a bunch more questions about the latter half of your career that we didn't have time to, for the live showing today. So over the years, you fielded cars for dozens of drivers as an owner. Who amongst those drivers stands out to you as perhaps the best driver or most consistent or maybe most fun? Well, you know, Ari Leyendijk was very, very good with us. and He finished right up, almost won the race for my wife and I. Um, Along with that, I would have to say uh, uh, Raul Boisel sitting on the front row at Indy uh, alongside of two Penske cars and ahead of three world champions. And Lynn St. James, uh, outstanding woman. She just did a phenomenal job. Out of those three drivers, I would have to say that I appreciated working with Lynn the most because she listened the most. And it was easier for me than, you know, when you're working with a male uh, driver they have their own idea and ways and you have to kind of prove things to them uh, with Lynn it was a little easier and a little more fun because I could try stuff and see what her reaction was to it and not get balled out because she didn't know all that much about the car and she had a lot of trust in me so with that trust we were able to put her up on the outside of second row ahead of three world champions I'd say that's probably uh, one of the most exciting times for me, along with when she won Rookie of the Year, her first year. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. How long did you work with Lynn St. James? Over how many years? I don't remember how many years. Uh, it was always a fight to try to get sponsorships. Um, we we did with J.C. Penney's. They came along and helped us. That's the year she did so well. Uh, a couple of other sponsors helped along the way. Uh, whenever we could to drum up the sponsorship she drove for us she actually had to leave one or two years because we didn't have sponsorships and then she came back uh with yellow freight and drove that car uh but uh, she always gave it her best and a little bit more i believe if i remember reading this correctly she'll be joining you at the svra invitational i heard i hear she was invited as well and she'll be there Yes, she's the one that actually got me involved. <clears throat> she was, after she retired from Indy Racing, she kept driving sports cars. And a lot of the vintage people would call her and ask her, you want to drive my car at uh, this track or that track or Lime Rock or, uh, you know, Sonoma? Uh, so she was, and she kept saying to me, Dick, you ought to come and race these vintage cars. They're fun. And I just never did. We have a business in Dana Point, Dick Simon Yachts, and basically I just end up working seven days a week. So she finally said, you can't pass this opportunity up. Tony Pirelli is forming us about six to 700 vintage cars to run on the Formula One track at Indianapolis. So I said, oh my God, yes, I'll be there. <laughs> and that's how I got started. So uh, I believe that was, what, five or six years ago? You had not been racing since your uh, last year in IndyCars, what, 1988 or so? Right. Until that gap. So you had a gap in, in that. Wow. Yeah, it was a big gap. But, you know, it's like a, a bowler, a baseball player, a, a hockey player, a basketball. You know, most sports people, it comes back right away uh, because it's in 
it's embedded in your system. So I, I didn't have any trouble getting back with it right away. <laughs> the last years of your ownership career were in the heat of the split between CART and the Indy Racing League. What was your perspective on that controversial time in American open wheel racing back in the late 1990s? Well, I was very upset with the fact that the the two groups were splitting because to me um, it was all pol politics, political. In other words, the big dollar owners couldn't have the rules the way they wanted them. So they decided to start something else and form an organization where they could make their own rules. And I, I thought that was not really good. But our sponsors wanted us to run at that time both. So I ran USAC races and I ran some of the cart races. And uh, uh, I just, I'm, I was very happy when CART decided to abandon itself and actually go back with the Indy program. Uh, that's the way it should have been. I should never have left, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to ask about tracks here in California that you used to race on that no longer exist, like the Ontario Motor Speedway that existed from 1968 to 1980 and the Riverside International Raceway from 1957 to 1989. What, were, what are your best memories of those tracks? I've always wanted to see them, but of course I was born well after they were gone. Well, my first race at Ontario Motor Speedway, I'll always remember because when I finished the race, I couldn't see. My eyes were full of sand. And oh, dang, uh, really? yeah, uh, but I finished third, uh, should have won the race, but finished third. And uh, that I'll remember. The second racetrack you mentioned was Riverside. If you go on Dick Simon Riverside on Google or or uh, anyway, just pull up Dick Simon Riverside. You'll see me flipping. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, at 190 the miles an hour and over and 12 times. So obviously I remember those two tracks most of all. Mm -hmm. Ontario Motor Speedway was very much like Indianapolis. It was two and a half miles around, four low banked corners connected by four, uh, two short straightaways, two long. What was it? Uh, do you remember... Uh, the first time you raced on Ontario uh, in trying to compare it to Indy, was there was there a big comparison to Indy? What do yes, think? I would say it was a very, very good comparison. If you could run good at Ontario, you would run good at uh, Phoenix as well as Indy. Um, a lot of the teams would go to Phoenix to test, as an example, or go to Ontario to test for Indy. The, both those two tracks were testing grounds for the Indy race. Um, uh, I would say a lot of Ontario reeked of the Indianapolis track. Interesting. How did you come to live in California? You, I remember you, I recall you saying you grew up in uh, Utah, right? You grew up in Utah? Well, I went to college in Wenatchee Junior College and then had a scholarship in University of Utah for skiing. Mm -hmm. So I moved to Utah and I lived in Utah for a number of years. And then uh, I loved to scuba dive. So basically uh, what happened is, and I had a pilot's license, multi-engine. And so we would fly down to Dana Point uh, and to Catalina and we would dive. And uh, so I started seeing what California coastline had to offer and I fell in love with it and uh, ended up moving from Utah to Dana Point, California. San Juan Capistrano was where I first moved and then to Dana Point. What year? Oh, I think that was in uh, 1976, I think. 
Oh dang! So so Ontario Motor Speedway and and I don't know. Did you compete at Long Beach? Yes or no? Oh yes, I yeah. I drove Long Beach as well. I love that track. It's uh, kind of scary at first because you can't really see around the corners. So you're trusting the fact that nobody's parked sideways around the corner, and that's what the flagmen are for, to, to forewarn you. But just to give you an example, when Raul Boisel was driving his first race for us in Long Beach, he came around a corner and Danny Angaius was sideways. He T-boned him and totaled both cars. And that happened because the flagman uh, didn't get the flag out quick enough. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, mistakes do happen. Uh, but that's the one thing that you, on a road course like that where the walls are, you know, artificial cement and stuff, uh, it, it's a little, little nerve-wracking when you can't see ahead. I, I'm used to driving way ahead. On the freeway, as an example, I can tell you a quarter of a mile up whether we're going to be slowing down or going fast. Uh, and, and I drive accordingly. And people that ride with me get scared because they say, you never look at, you know, you pull out this lane, change to that lane, you never look. And I said, well, in a way, my whole body looks. I just feel where the cars are. And I think that's part of what helps you to be a good driver or a good pilot if you're a pilot. And the same thing in sports. If you're competitive and you really get involved in whatever sport it is, you develop a feel for what's around you, what's going about to happen. And you start learning to have an expectation of about what's going to happen so that you react before you can think. Indeed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, quick story from from me. I was just taking uh, my commercial driver's license permit test at the DMV, and one of the big facts was to look a quarter mile ahead wherever you're driving to make sure to scan the road and, make, and anticipate what's coming. Definitely, I imagine race car drivers have to look maybe even farther ahead because they're driving so fast. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you talked about the driver's test years and years ago when I took a driver's test in in uh, uh, actually. Seattle, Washington, I think it was, um, I drive with my left foot on the brake. Mm -hmm. And the instructor said, sometime during this test, I'm going to ask you to stop. And when I say stop, I mean I want you to bring the car to an immediate halt. And he he said, I'm not going to tell you when. So basically, we're doing it. And he says, make a right turn here, make a left turn here, stop. No way, really. (laughs) And my foot was already almost on the brake so i stopped so fast that it threw him and his board where he was writing down my scores and everything right against the dash and he he says you must have been left foot braking and i said yeah that's the way my reactions are quicker Uh and he says no you're not supposed to do that yeah I learned. I I was surprised by the same fact i was uh, when i was initially taking my passenger license test about three or four years ago and yeah that you don't left foot brake in a passenger car but in a race car you have to yeah well, you're driving 200 and some miles an hour. You know, when you go into turn one at 235 uh, or turn three uh, and you're six inches off the back of a car, you you don't have reaction timing. Uh, you know, you have to just do it. It's just automatic. Your foot's right there, and it's just a matter of impulse. All right. So I wanted to get on to a little bit more about the SVRA and the, your involvement with the Sports Car Vintage Racing Association to conclude the show and 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 uh, preview the coming race, your final race. 
what is the invitational like? You mentioned six, seven hundred cars around around the road course at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. What's the atmosphere like between you, the other drivers, spectators? Well, since it's a race that is, I call it a nine-tenths race. In other words, everybody races nine-tenths. And if you race uh, 100% and put a scratch on the car, you're never invited back. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have to keep that little reserve, which then still makes it fun, but you, you've you got the challenge of trying to win and save that one-tenth of a percent. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know. I guess it's just uh, a thrill to get in a car and drive it at its maximum. Start. You get to a point where you start to slide, and that's where you want to be, just right at that point. And that is so thrilling. Uh, whether you drive a go-kart, whether you drive a boat, I, I've raced in the world championships in boats. Same thing. Oh, really? Dang, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> I've totaled one, <laughs> and it sank yeah. with me in the engine room. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that 700 yeah. cars that they have uh-huh. uh, is divided amongst every kind of car you can imagine. Mm-hmm. The Indy, old Indy cars, the ancient Indy cars. The, like in our class that I run, it's a 1964 to 1972 Corvettes, Mustangs, Cobras, and a a number of other cars that are muscle cars of that area. And so, like on our race, there's probably 50 cars. Uh, And so that's why I say the first race for us to have finished third, I'm pretty excited because my health is better now than it was back then. So I'm getting better instead of older. Mm Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. You mentioned at the very beginning of the show the car that you'll be driving. I forgot it because I, I I wasn't able to look at it before. What was the car that you're planning on driving? It's a 1964 Corvette with 750 horsepower. Amazing. So have, you own the car? No, it's owned by Jim Heck out of Ohio. Uh, as I mentioned before, the way the promoter does this is he gets uh, a 33 owners to provide the cars for the 33 drivers that he promotes and brings back to run the race with him. And we split the race. We we run 20 minutes each. The owner of the car runs the first 20 minutes. Then you come into the pits on a timed stop. So in other words, if you need fuel, you can put fuel in, mm-hmm. change drivers, and you're on a time stop. So you can't go out of the pits four minutes and 30 seconds or you're disqualified. You gotta go out of the pits in a full five minutes of stopping and then race like crazy the last uh, 20 minutes. It's a timed race. So you'll be sharing the car? Uh, with uh, Jim Heck, yes. Oh, it's his heck. car. And he, he runs it uh, throughout the country at various races. And the part that is pretty thrilling and exciting for me is I didn't even know until this year that he's been running those other races with my name across the front of the car. <laughs> <laughs> he just leaves it there. <laughs> Looking forward to having you back, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely so many more questions I have tell me one story that we haven't brought up yet maybe about about your life something that you think defines you well you know I've had a very busy life I would have to say that uh, the good Lord's been very good to me uh, whether I've raced in boats and totaled a couple of them I still didn't get hurt uh, I flew a plane through a barn one time the wings got tore off uh, I didn't uh, get hurt. Uh, the engine quit at in the dark at night, and there was no way to see. The moon wasn't there. The clouds and bad weather. Um, 
I've married four times, uh, 12 years the first time, eight the second, eight the third. I have nine children, 22 grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren. I would just have to say the good Lord's been very good to me. I spent every penny I could get in racing. So unfortunately, but maybe fortunately, I'm still working seven, six to seven days a week. But, you know, I'm able to do it. So to me, I'm a lucky guy. What a blessing. What a blessing. My last marriage, 38 years. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yep. Amazing. You found the right one. Yep. And Dick, thank you so much for spending time on Speedway Sounds today. Well, thank you, Noah. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to do it again if you want to. Oh, what an amazing, amazing story that Dick Simon told on Speedway Sounds last month. Very happy to be able to play that interview again for you all. I hope you all enjoyed it. As a little bit of an epilogue, that race that he was talking about, the Brickyard Vintage Racing Invitational, took place on June 15th and 16th at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course. I can uh, talk about a little bit about the qualifying results from that and how Dick Simon did that weekend in his final race of his career. And so to start with qualifying that took place on Saturday afternoon, it appears that Dick Simon had a bit of a troublesome qualifying. He only qualified 21st out of 22 in a lap time that was actually much slower than what he had practiced with. Uh, so he was starting at the back along with uh, his uh, former driver, Lynn St. James, was starting in 20th. And, of course, he was racing alongside, uh, sharing the car with James Heck, the car owner of the Chevrolet Corvette, 1964 Chevrolet Corvette. But he turned it around on Sunday for a very good 12th place finish in the Invitational and beat some huge names that were invited to this race, the Pro-Am division of the entire Invitational event. There were actually, other than the Pro-Am group, there were 10 different groups, so a very large amount of cars. And so Dick Simon uh, finished ahead of some very notable names, Ron Fellows, Canadian sports car and NASCAR driver, Jeff Brabham, Alan Sir Jr., Lynn St. James, Davey Hamilton, Willie T. Ribs, Bob Lazier, Paul Tracy, who of course is the current IndyCar on NBCSN commentator, and also in the race finishing ahead, uh, the podium for that race, the Pro-Am, uh, was Bill Elliott and Ray Everham, driver and owner in the number nine, Ford Boss 302 from 1970 finished third. In second was Kurt Vogt and Max Pappas, also a current IndyCar steward and former NASCAR driver, IndyCar driver as well, in the number 530 1966 Shelby Mustang GT350. And the winner of the Pro-Am Racing Invitational, the Indy Legends Charity Vintage Pro-Am, excuse me, was the number 33 of Michael Donahue and Matt Brabham in a 1963 Chevrolet Corvette Roadster. So I'd say a very respectable performance in his last ever race at 84 years old. An incredible story. I look forward to talking with him again soon. Still lives down in Dana Point and runs that yacht business, as he was describing. So that's it for this week on Speedway Sounds. Thanks again to Samantha Tan and Kenneth Sutton for taking the time to record interviews at Fumzane Automotive in Orange. Follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Speedway Sounds, all one word. Always wear your helmet and never ever drive distracted or under the influence. And please always wear your seatbelt. I'm your host, Noah Stein, and you're listening to Speedway Sounds on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks again to Natalie Vargas Rojas for allowing me her time today. She will be back next week with her show, California Dreamin', 
from 4.30 p.m. to 5 on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Have an awesome rest of your Tuesday.